Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. Got your Bibles and turned Isaiah chapter 45, Isaiah 45, as we continue our journey with the prophet Isaiah here in the second portion of the book of Isaiah. And we get finally to the verse tonight um, that is the chief cause of some theologians believing that there was more than one Isaiah. And the reason being. Uh, that there's such a specific prophecy here in these first couple of verses uh, that is virtually inconceivable to a person who doesn't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, the inspiration of Scripture, and furthermore, in the miraculous happening through Scripture that someone looks at this and says, it's just too specific. It's too far in advance. And so as we begin chapter 45, what we really see, though, is this incredible picture of our creator, God. Would you pray with me? And we'll pick up here in verse one. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you are who you say you are. That you're the one who created all things. That by you and through you were all things that were created, created. Without you was nothing created. That everything was created for you. And that ultimately in you all things consist. And so, Lord, we pray that your word would speak to us tonight. But Lord, as we sit here under the stars, poured out in your creation, Lord, with the fresh air and the cool wind, that you, the God of heaven, would warm our hearts with your word. We ask these things in the amazing name of Jesus. Amen. Verse 1, for thus says the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. So again, when we see that, that is God's ineffable name. That's him declaring who he is. This is the Yahweh. This is Lord of hosts. This is the one who is above all things. This is I am. Thus says the Lord who is anointed. Who's his anointed? Brothers and sisters, when someone tells you that God cannot, does not ever use unbelievers for his purposes, you can point them to this chapter. Cyrus is a heathen king. He's not saved in that sense. He does not know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is in every way, shape, or form what we would call a heathen. And yet I want you to notice the title that God gives him. Thus says the Lord to his anointed his called one. It's not pointing to his salvation. It's not pointing to an Old Testament type of being saved. It's pointing to God's purposeful, willful appointment of this particular man. How do we know? To Cyrus. Whose right hand I have held to subdue the nations before him and loose the armor of kings to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not shut. I go before you and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and I will cut the bars of iron. Somebody asked me in an email a couple of days ago, why I'm not so stirred up about what's going on in our political world today. And I pointed them to this passage. I happen to be finishing my notes. 
And I said, the last time that I looked, God does not exclusively need to use saved people to accomplish his purposes. In fact, he can actually use people who don't know him, who are not concerned about his things to do his perfect will. In fact, he actually appoints them. Cyrus is going to be used of the Lord in a magnificent way. God is going to purpose to use his life. Now, this does not mean that God doesn't want, in places of government, godly, nay, Christian, in our day and time, leaders. He certainly does. That would be his preference. But do not back God into a corner, and do not lose hope. If you find yourself in a situation, if we find ourselves in a situation where there is someone that we don't quite understand understand why God would appoint them, why God would use them, because behind the man is the Lord. That's why Romans 13, 2 Peter 2, the book of Titus, declare that no matter who's in office, we're supposed to pray for those people that God is allowed to be there or appointed to be there. This is a picture of that very thing. The real issue for many people when they read this particular chapter is that they don't believe that the scriptures are as they themselves declare themselves to be in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. For no prophecy ever came by the will of man. In other words, the Bible wasn't actually authored by people, by men. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. In other words, the actual author behind Scripture is God himself. He writes it. He uses human hands. He uses paper that we make and ink that we manufacture. Printing presses that we print Bible pages and binders that we bind them with. He's the one that put the intelligence into the heart of humankind to create things like smartphones and allow you to have a Bible program on your smartphone, which many of you are looking at right now. But the words themselves, the intent of God, were authored by him. In other words, God wrote these words. Isaiah simply wrote what God told him to write. When you understand Scripture from that perspective, then you are in tune with the miraculous. You're in tune with the supernatural. You're in tune with the unexplainable sometimes. And notice I said sometimes. God gives us information, but God doesn't necessarily give us all the information. People often ask, well, why why didn't God leave us the cross of Christ? Let me tell you why. I think. This is a guess on my part, because people would worship the cross itself. That cross would have 24-hour a day, seven-day-a-week visitors and people wailing on it and crying for it and trying to peel pieces of it off. In fact, there are supposedly a few splinters of the cross that exist in Christendom to this day. And literally, they are worshipped. They're treated as though they themselves have some power. The only power that exists in the whole universe, all of it, is created by and for God and because he said so. God's behind everything. And that becomes very true in this present passage that's before us. You see, I have no problem believing that God, who dwells outside of space and time, examines our time domain, part of the universe that we live in. One of the very building blocks of it is we live in a universe that's comprised of space and time and matter. You can't pull out any one of those three and still have the universe that we dwell in. 
But God dwells outside of that time domain. He's not bound by it. He can see it beginning to end. He's not bound by the material world, so he can be at all places at all times. And because time time itself was created for man in the beginning, God, Genesis 1-1 says. And because God dwells outside of it, he has no problem telling us who the leader of a group of people that would become Persia that did not yet exist when these words were written. The Archimaeans, he would have no problem knowing who the ruler is. And so he tells Isaiah 150 years in advance of the great King Cyrus doing what God is going to instruct him to do. And thankfully, because God wants us to understand that he's telling the truth, he does give us some marvelous confirmations. And such is the truth of Cyrus himself. And so Cyrus is named by name. He's going to be an instrument of God. He's going to be anointed of God. God is going to go before him. God is going to open gates that no one can close. And God is going to cause him to prosper in all that he does. That's what we know about Cyrus. So we would think that there might be some evidence of that. If we have evidence of that time frame in our history books, which we do, that you might be able to find some of it. And as has been true with the last several chapters, we find some more tonight. In fact, in the country of Iran today in 2013, they actually put Cyrus Day on their calendar as a national holiday. So if you have the app out, you can look at the tomb of Cyrus in Pasagarda. That is the garden, that is an actual Farsi word that means garden or paradise. And so his former capital city, part of it still exists, including his tomb. And so Cyrus was believed to be a historical figure, and we would expect to see some impact on the world around us. And for those of you, I don't know how many of you like gardens. Um, I happen to love gardens. Um, I've seen quite a few very, very nice gardens, including um, the Bouchard Gardens in Victoria, B.C. Um, traveled to uh, some beautiful places. If you travel to Salzburg, Austria, you can go to the Mirabel Gardens there. Uh, if you happen to go to the capital city of Vienna, as Connie and I have spent some time there, uh, you can go visit the Belvedere Gardens, the Royal Gardens, outside of Schönbrunn. You, you can... Go to these beautiful places. Interestingly enough, you know where they got their start? Cyrus the Persian. They're actually Persian-designed gardens. And so when you travel to Versailles in France, Persian garden. Beautiful Persian gardens. They still exist. Cyrus's capital city still has gardens in it to this day. Same thing with the Bouchard Gardens in Victoria and B.C., Canada. We have a lot of history that's been defined by the Persians. And yet, interestingly enough, we have a country now named Iran, which used to be named Persia. And in fact, when the Shah of Iran was deposed and ultimately sent into exile from what was then Persia in 1979, you may have remembered that we had some captives, about 51 of them that were captured. It would take a couple of years almost to get them freed from what became Iran. But up until that time, it was Persia. It was the home of the Persian kings. And so when you open your Bible and you begin to look at these things, you're going to find some interesting things exist. And one of them is that there's not one, not two, not three, but five Persian kings in a very short time space, less than 200 years, that are mentioned in your Bible. We have Cyrus here, who is Cyrus the Mede, the founder of the Persian Empire. Um, He's actually going to conquer Media, which is an adjacent 
Empire. He's going to conquer Lydia. He's going to conquer the Babylonian empires. We're going to see a little bit of that. Uh, And he's going to uh, be benevolent towards the people that he captures. And we're going to look at what he did to codify that in what is the world's first statement on human rights. It was actually written by Cyrus the Great. After him, uh, the son of Cyrus was Shambesis. Shambesis uh, ruled for a very short time. Uh, after his father, then Pseudo-Samertus ruled after him, and then finally Darius the Great, whom we met, remember, in the book of Daniel, we were studying through that. And if you go to Iran today, to the city of Shiraz, in Shiraz you'll actually find the palace of Darius the Great called Persopolis. And there in the hall the main inscription that's there, it actually says, I am Darius the Great, king of kings, king of lands, who constructed this palace. His son is Xerxes. You find him in the book of Esther. And then after him is Artaxerxes, whom you ladies just studied in the book of Nehemiah. And so you have all these Persian kings that left evidence after evidence after evidence Tablets, orthostats, wall engravings, clay pieces with all kinds of information on them that we can validate that these were real kings. And in fact, Cyrus the Great wrote the first charter of human rights. His name was known as Korush in Persian at the time. His name was Koros. In Greek, and so he was well known. And in fact, if you travel to the UN today in New York, travel to the UN building, you'll see his charter. And it says this from this exact time, it's contained on the Cyrus cylinder, which resides today in the British National Museum. You notice how many of these artifacts exist in the British National Museum? It's because the British, when they were colonizing most of the world, Uh, also sent their archaeologists everywhere and ultimately ended up with a lot of these things. It says on that, and there is a replica of this in the United Nations, and beneath it there is the translation. It says, I am Cyrus, king of the world. When I entered Babylon, I did not allow anyone to terrorize the land. I kept in view the needs of the people and all its sanctuaries to promote their well-being, and I put an end to their misfortune. You know, that kind of sounds a whole lot more like God than it does like a conquering army, doesn't it? What did verses 1 and 2 say? That Cyrus, the Mede, the conquering Persian, would be used in the hand of God, and Cyrus himself actually records what he did. This is not normal for rulers of the time. I put it into their misfortune. The great God. Who do you suppose that is? Now, some of you are going, well, Persia must have been Allah. Uh, That would be 1,100 years later. Don't forget that Islam didn't come about until about 614 AD. This is 580, 529 BC or BCE, if you care has delivered all, the, God, the great God has delivered all the lands into my hand. What does it say? To subdue all the nations before him. Cyrus actually recorded what he did, and it matches exactly what Scripture says God would have him do. The lands that I have made to be a dwelling place in a peaceful habitation, when my soldiers in great numbers peacefully entered Babylon. What? Peacefully entered Babylon. Who sent them to Babylon? God did. Why? Because his people had been in captivity in Babylon for 50 years. Actually, 70 by the time they leave. This is not the Bible. This is archaeology. Archaeology proving exactly what the Bible says is true. I kept in view the needs of all people and all of its sanctuaries to promote their well-being. He repeats it. Freed all the slaves. I put an end to their misfortune and their slavery, referring, by the way, to the Jewish people who were in captivity. 
The great God has delivered all the lands into my hands, the lands that I have made to dwell in peaceful habitation. That you can go read in the UN, and it's not from the Bible, but it points exactly to chapter 45, verses 1 and 2 of the book of Isaiah. Because that is exactly what God said he would do. Whose right hand I have held, verse 1, to subdue the nations before him, which he did, to loose the armor of the kings, to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. You notice what it doesn't say there? Not killing anybody. He's not destroying the city, which was the normal tactic of especially the Assyrians and the Babylonians. They attacked with terror. Your Bible says that God appointed and anointed Cyrus the king 150 years before he went to Babylon and said he would peacefully go into that city and set the captives free. And Cyrus himself recorded that that's exactly what he did. This is amazing stuff. If you travel to Babylon today, you can see the old and the new. And again, if you don't have the app, you can look at it later. Just go to the website and pull up the PowerPoint slides. But uh, the ruins of the ancient city of Babylon and the modern city of Babylon that was being rebuilt by Saddam Hussein when he was captured and ultimately put to death for war crimes, uh, the ancient city had walls that were 100 feet tall, 60 feet thick in spots. The river Euphrates ran directly through it making a walled city of roughly 15 square miles. Now, to put that into perspective, that is a huge city still to this day. That would be a very large metropolitan center. The walls of the Euphrates were basically walled in so that the river went through the middle of the city. And on that, gates closed off the river at night to the surface so that ships couldn't come, ships couldn't go, people couldn't swim in. There were bars. Notice that your passage says the bars would be opened. And that's not talking about someplace where you can imbibe in alcohol. Cyrus came with his army and managed to take this city. And if you were with us in our study of the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 5, you remember what King Belshazzar was doing? He had gathered all of the implements that he had stolen from the temple in Jerusalem And he was having a party with the holy instruments from the temple. And it was on that night that God required of him. And do you remember what happened? Uh, He died. God said, you're going to croak right now, tonight. And he did. And so Cyrus comes through the gates. Cyrus takes the city. And Belshazzar is gone. He's dead. And so God tells us of this. He makes the crooked places straight. He'll break the gates. He'll cut the bars of iron. So these giant gates that closed off the river Euphrates that had iron bars below them, God just says, that's no problem for me. And actually, historically, we believe what happened. Uh, There has been some excavation to prove this, is that the Persian army actually diverted the the river Euphrates north of the city caused the water to flow out into the marshes, and they walked in on dry land because Belshazzar wasn't looking for anybody coming through the city gates. They knew they weren't going over the walls or through the gates. And so they came in, just walked into the city and took it. And so God tells us some things that only God could tell us, and he's going to make some additional amazing claims in the rest of the chapter. And basically, God's kind of bragging a little bit. Remember, he's already said, look, If you can do these things, why don't you tell me what you can do? Tell me something in advance. Why don't you share some tidbit of information? One of the things that bolsters our faith as believers is when we look at the Bible and it lines up with what we see in the natural world or in the world of archaeology or history or in science, we can then know that God is telling us enough to say, That wasn't written by somebody who had no understanding. That was written by somebody who had understanding that nobody else in the world had at the time. Now, interestingly enough, the Babylonians, also the Arcadians, 
uh, were beginning to look at the night sky, but they were still looking at the night sky as if the night sky was just slightly above their head and there were little pinpricks in it and light shone through it. They didn't know where the light came from. We're going to get to that next. Notice verse 3. I will give you the treasures of darkness, the hidden riches of secret places. Why? That you may know that I, the Lord, who you call by your, your name, I am the God of Israel. I'm doing this stuff so that you'll know that I'm God. God doesn't waste time. He doesn't waste effort. He doesn't waste energy. He tells us the truth about who he is. He gives us enough information that even a person who's born in a place that you would say that's not a Christian area or a Christian nation, God gives us by our conscience, by the innate law that's inscribed on our heart, by what we would call nature or the world around us. He does give us information about who he is. For Jacob, my servant's sake, for Israel, my elect, I have called you by your name. He says, I want my people to know when, when you go into Babylon, and this, this is one of the things that's always amazed me about this passage. Can you imagine, because the children of Israel would have had Isaiah's prophecy when they were in captivity in Babylon. And here comes this guy that God named by name by the prophet Isaiah who walks into the city and sets them free and doesn't harm a single one of them. Matter of fact, he, he releases them from their captivity and it will be his sons and grandsons that will actually completely release the Jewish people and send them back to rebuild Jerusalem. That will be Artaxerxes. This is a family of people that God anointed and appointed, and not one of them, would we say, was an actual follower of God himself. There's no way that this could have been written except that God did it himself. Now notice this, and this is how we know he wasn't a believer in the one true God. I have named you, though you have not known me. So when someone tells you that God doesn't use heathen kings, when God can't use somebody that isn't a Christian, you can just take them to this passage and say, really? That's not what God said. God has, is, and does use anything and everything as it suits his purpose. He is sovereign in all the heavens. And so we can trust him, even if we don't understand how it's all going to work out. That's why we shouldn't be freaking out right now. We who know the Lord know that God can even use evil for good. Can he not? Not what, not what Genesis 50 says. That which you intended for evil, God used for good. God's able, church. And we need to remember this in these days. No way that Isaiah could have named Cyrus by name without God intervening in his heart, in his mind, and for the people who were desperately in need at that moment. So rest in that. This is a message from, you know, if you wanted to ever see an extraterrestrial message, this is it. This came from another land. This wasn't somebody really smart that figured it all out. Next, notice who we get introduced to. Now, this is in the same vein in verse 5. God doesn't want us to miss the truth here. <laughs> he is just a little bit brighter than we are. A little bit smarter a little bit more able. He can do things that we can't do. And so in the same exact vein, he says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Verse five, there is no God besides me. I will gird you. This is still speaking of Cyrus, by the way. Though you have not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun till its setting, that there is none beside me, 
That is God saying about God's people, Cyrus, the reason I'm going to use you and you don't even know me is I want my people who do know me to know that it was me. This is why I've been on such a tear with people lately when they keep throwing their hands, oh my goodness, what's going to happen next? What's going to happen next is the sovereign king of heaven is still going to rule. That's what's going to happen next. And ultimately, his purposes will not be thwarted. No matter what's going on, God wins. Doesn't mean that we won't go through difficult times. Doesn't mean that there won't be things that come that we won't like. Doesn't mean any of that. It means the sovereign God of heaven is not limited by space and time and matter. He can do anything, anytime. Why? That God's people would be encouraged, church, encouraged that there's none besides me, him. I am the Lord. There is no other. There isn't one. There's not competing gods. There's exactly one. Every other thing that professes to be God is false. There's one God, three persons, That's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And besides that, there's nothing else that's God. That's it. God's distinguishing himself. He's he's making claims that no one else can replicate. Now, I want you to notice what he says next because he's going to give us a physics lesson. I form the light. I create darkness. I make peace. I create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. He just laid claim to the laws of thermodynamics. He said, all forms of energy, light, I create all that. I form it. I make it. It's me. He says, I create darkness. How do you create darkness? You have to have the absence of light. If there's any light, so there must be some place that there's dark, because God has allowed it purposefully to not have the light that he created. So he's talking about the laws of thermodynamics. Energy cannot be created nor destroyed. It can only be altered in form. He's also giving us the law of entropy, which all things tend towards chaos or disorder. The law of conservation, that nothing can ever get down to nothing. So he's really describing here in a simple way, I'm the one that holds it all together. I'm the one that created the stars. I'm the one that is the light of the world. Isn't it interesting that we're in the beginning part of the second half of the book of Isaiah and we find the exact same thing that John's gospel begins with, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And the word was God. And then in verse 9 of John chapter 1, that was the true light which lights every man that comes into the world. And Jesus says, I am. Ultimately, by the time you get to chapter 8, he says, I am the light of the world. Well, he's not just talking about spiritual things. He's actually talking about his role as creator. Though he is talking about the light that comes into men's souls. He's also saying, you know, the, the reason the sun that thermonuclear engine that's burning up there by fusion, that thing, that you don't know what it is, the reason that doesn't explode, that's me holding it together. The reason that this earth, isn't it weird? For those of you, and and I'm not a climate change denier, I believe that sometimes it's spoken of extremely. But I just read an article today that we have finally passed the threshold that we cannot turn back climate change, that by the year 2050, just saying, I'll be dead by then, that the world, they're worried about, hear me well, the world's mean temperature is going to go up by 5.3 degrees. You know what that tells me? That this little blue ball that we rotate around, this third rock from the sun, It's very precisely organized 
because it changing by five degrees, it changed five degrees while you were sitting here tonight. But it changes those degrees and goes right back up. I happen to have been in places on this earth that have been as low as minus 25 at night and 50 during the day. God somehow, in the conservation of energy, through entropy, all things tending towards decay, but that no energy can be created nor destroyed, manages to hold our planet within four or five degrees of the same mean temperature, and yet we have places that are perpetually frozen in ice and most of the year someplace below freezing or well below freezing. And we have places where the daytime temperature is 120 degrees on the surface and warmer than that if you happen to possess a black car. God says, I form the light. I form the darkness. I hold it all together. Your physical world wouldn't even exist if I didn't have it in my hands. It is so precisely tuned. It is so mind-bogglingly controlled by an amazing God that says, I formed it, I made it, I created it. That not only am I the one who puts the light into the hearts of men, but just exactly as the book of Colossians reminds us, by him all things consist. That there's nothing that was made that he didn't make. So he is the conserver of everything. It is held together is another way to look at that. And so here in the book of Isaiah, God's giving us some insight. Look, you're not going to figure this out. If you looked at my Instagram post from today, that's the Sombrero Galaxy. It was filmed by the Hubble Space Telescope. And I'm a fan, just saying. I mean, it boggles my mind. I look at these images. As we sit here tonight, astrophysicists think that the universe is some 13.8 billion light years in diameter. It's an ever-expanding circle. Now they're seeing it. Maybe it's contracting. They don't really know. And in it, they previously believed there was 170 or so billion galaxies. They now believe there are two trillion galaxies in our universe. And each one of them has between 105 to 600 billion stars. And God says, I form the light. I made it. I hold it together. I did it. Now, why do you suppose God would tell us something like that right after he gives us a piece of information where he names somebody by name 150 years in advance and then has them do exactly what he said he's going to do, go in and set his people free, and then says, no, by the way, you're not an accident. You're not part of some endless random chance processes that took 13.8 billion years to come about, some 3.7 million years of human evolution, monkey to man, or billions of years of evolution if you want to take a blue-green algae and somehow move from goo to you. You're not an accident. The universe isn't an accident. It's not a cosmic accident. There is a God who dwells outside of space and time that created everything that you see and touch, everything you know, everything you are, knows the numbers of the hairs on your head, knows your days and what's going to happen in each of them, and he cares for you as much as he cares for anyone else on this earth. It's supposed to cause you to go, praise God. Praise God that we, it's so insane. We have this project called SETI, which is a search for extraterrestrial intelligence. 
these series of radio telescopes set up all over the globe. We have a whole series of them here in the Owens Valley. And they're, they're searching out in space for signs of intelligent life. I was going to say something about politics, but I withheld my tongue. You should be proud of me. They haven't found anything. They keep looking for something that's patterned, that has some type of syntax, something that's repeated, something that can be picked up and say, that isn't just noise. You know what they keep finding as they search the galaxies? Just noise. They haven't found a single planet. Not a planet, not an exoplanet. They haven't found anything. They haven't found life anywhere. Keep saying, well, it could be here, it could be there. You keep talking about the ice on Mars and all these things. Well, we think there might be the building blocks of life. Before you get too excited about what they might find on Mars, you have some 240,000 amino acids and proteins that make up a single cell in you. A single cell. So finding one amino acid or one protein isn't exactly a big deal. And then those things have to, they have to have their own dating app. Because they're going to sit around for billions of years. And then they have to be linked together with a DNA molecule so that they have some way to order themselves to create other cells and systems somehow end up doing anything that looks remotely like life. So if you're one of those people that believes we got here by chance, you have far more faith than I do. But what I believe is there's a creator that dwells outside of space and time, has created everything, and he did so for his own good pleasure, and he did it with purpose because he loves us. That's the God you're being introduced to. That's who he's declaring he is. He says, don't think it's an accident. It's not. This is why when you get to the book of Acts and you see the life of Cornelius, Cornelius was a Roman centurion. Do you think he knew anything about God himself? You know, he'd been raised in the church? Absolutely not. And yet somehow God prepped his heart he just knew he needed Jesus. And I wonder sometimes if it wasn't because he looked up in the night sky and thought to himself, how in the world did that get there? I wonder if those basic questions that humanity asks that are answered by Scripture, by the way, were without excuse, according to Romans chapter 1, that the very things that he's made the infinitely small things that he's made, by the way, the things that we can see and the things that we can't see, things visible and invisible, Romans 1 says, which at the time that was written, nobody knew about the invisible things, but the Apostle Paul somehow managed to write things invisible. What do you mean things invisible that make up creation? Somebody held a rock, they didn't realize it was a crystalline structure of many different types of minerals. It was just a rock. God is that amazing. He tells us these things in advance so that when we see what they actually are, when you look at a cell and you realize there's mitochondrial motors that drive it, you're wondering where they get the energy from and it's extracted from inside of you as you consume food, it's somehow converted into energy and that energy can't be destroyed and it it can only be transformed. Guess where it gets transformed? In the mitochondrial motor. You can't see it. You have over 3,000 miles of blood vessels in your body. Try laying those out end to end to see if you can create a pump that can pump from one end to the other. You think all those systems waited around for all everybody to gather together? Well, we need a lung. Could we get a lung, please? I need a heart. You need a circulatory system, not just a heart. You ever wonder what got created first, the heart of your brain? Guess what? You got to have both simultaneously. Understand what I'm saying? Church, you should be encouraged. You are not an accident. 
You are exactly what Scripture declares, fearfully, wonderfully made. Your Father knows you. He tells us these things so that we can trust him and rest in who he is. And so when Jesus finally says to the disciples in Matthew's gospel, you are the light of the world, he's saying, look, I want you to take this truth into the world. I don't want you to take news. I want you to take the good news into the world. I want you to take light into the world. I want you to take me into the world. I want you to be me to this world in that sense, not that you're going to replace the Lord. But as Philippians tells us in chapter 2, shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life. What's the word of life? The Bible. The word of God. All that God has declared of himself, Old Testament and New. That's why we focus on the study of God's word in this church and not on other things. That's why we do what we do in that sense, church. That's why there is no other name, just exactly as Acts 4 says, under heaven whereby men must. It says must be saved, and that's a correct translation. Must be saved. You can't get saved any other way. There's no other God. There's no other creator. There's just him. And so God gives us this information, and specifically to the Jewish people, so that when this happened, they would go, that's him. Now look at your own life and see if God hasn't spoken to you in similar ways, especially in your conversion experience. Where God has told you things, done things in your life where there's no explanation for that. I used to be a drug addict, you might be saying, right? I used to be an alcoholic. Or I used to be a thief or a liar. I used to be this other person. I was dead in my trespasses and sins, but he made me alive. He poured his light into my life. Isaiah got a glimpse of that. It's what he's seeing. It's what he's writing. That's how he's instructing the church to this day. So, It begs the question, why do men actually strive with God? What is it? Well, most often because I think they have the wrong concept of God. That's the short answer. Notice verse 8, rain down you heavens from above and let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open and let it bring forth salvation. Let righteousness spring up together for I, the Lord, have created it. God created righteousness. I did not create evil. He allows evil. He will even use it if necessary. He says, I, the Lord, created righteousness. Woe unto him, notice it, verse 9, who strives with his maker. He says, whoa. It's another way of saying, don't do it. But the potsherd? Strive with the potsherds of the earth. In other words, let men do things between themselves. Or shall the clay say to him who forms it, what are you doing? What are you making? Or the handiwork say he has no hands? God's laying claim to you. And he's giving us some very wise counsel. He's saying, you know, I actually know better than you do. I know what I'm doing. And it might be a good idea if you agreed with me instead of fighting with me all the time. Instead of trying to tell me how you want to live your life, why don't you live your life the way I've told you you should live it? Why are you the clay trying to tell the potter, the one who's going to shape you and mold you, the one who can take you off the wheel and slam you on the ground if he wants to? Why are you trying to tell God what to do with your life? He created you, is the picture. That's why in Genesis chapter 6, we find an interesting thing that God says before he destroys the earth. With the flood, my spirit will not always strive with man. I have my limits. I'm gracious, I'm kind. But don't make me strive forever is basically what he's saying. He's saying, don't be back-talking clay. Don't be the one who says, nah, I know what your word says, but I'm not going to do that, Lord. Because at the end of the day, Clay without a potter is pretty much worthless. It's mud, isn't it? Clay without a potter is nothing more than mud. 
It might be nice, creamy mud. It might be really slick, beautiful mud, but it's just mud. It's dirt and water, and that's it. And ultimately, that's about all we are is dirt and water. In fact, if you leave us laying around long enough after we expire, uh, we'll turn back into dirt and a little bit of moisture. God's kind of reminding us, look, remember who makes you the most valuable. Oh, you have some value as dirt. Some value as clay. Maybe somebody can make a brick out of you. That's where we get the term hard-headed, right? Sometimes it's as hard as a brick. Everybody can be one of those, but God wants to make you something special. He wants to do something with you that's wonderful. He has a plan for your life. God is the one who puts worth and value into us. It's his plans and purposes that make us of our highest value. That's why when somebody says to me, well, you know, know, I don't know if God would, you know, God wouldn't do anything with Sure he would. He's created you uniquely for a purpose. He has wonderful plans for your life. The question is, are you going to strive with him? God even made Cyrus for a divine purpose. And he made you for a divine purpose. He made me. We were actually created, Scripture says, to do the will of God the Father. That's what we were created for. God's not some kind of like glorified Santa Claus at a mall, which we're not going to have any of that because of COVID. There'll be, you know, virtual Santas. But God's not like you, you don't just give him a note and say, do this, do that, send me this, send me that. It would, this is how it would work if you were to walk up to Santa. Santa, why don't you just give me what is best for me? That's how your prayer life should be. Give me what you know that I need. Give me what's best for me. That's what God wants to do. I need to take my own hands off of my life and let God do with it as he wills and pleasures. Woe to him, verse 10, who says to his father, what are you begetting? Or the woman, what have you brought forth? For thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and his maker, ask me things to come concerning my sons, concerning the work of my hands, which you commanded me. I have made the earth and I created man on it. Is that, is that specific enough for you? I created the earth and I put man on it. The very same thing is declared in the book of Genesis. And my hands, by them, I have stretched out the heavens. If you look at a diagram of the universe right now, you're going to actually see a circle. You're going to see galaxies scattered all over it. The circle of heaven. And all their hosts I have commanded. Who's the host? That's the stars. That's the galaxies. And I've raised up him in righteousness, and I will direct his ways. He shall build my city. He shall let my exiles go free. What did the Cyrus Cylinder say? I set the captives free. Cyrus actually went and did what God told him to do. Not for a price, nor a reward, says the Lord of hosts. He's going to do it because God told him to do it. Not because there was anything in it for him. Cyrus is going to do the bidding of God. God basically is saying, look, I raised him up. You watch, check out what he does, and you're going to see, I'm telling you right now, here's what he's going to do. And then Cyrus does it. If I was the children of Israel, I'd have been going, I'm serving Jesus. Of course, they didn't know Jesus yet. But they would have, in a way, said, I'm serving the Lord. I'm following God. So God declares, I raised him up. Verse 14, for thus says the Lord, the labor of Egypt, the merchandise of Cush. So Egypt, Cush would be Ethiopia and the Sabians, the men of the desert, men of stature shall come over you, and they shall be yours. They shall walk behind you. They shall come over in chains, and they shall bow down to you. 
They'll make supplication to you. Surely God is in you and there is no other. There's no other God. In other words, he's using a heathen king to even preach who he is. They're going to see what you do and how you do it, and they're going to give glory and honor and praise to God. Truly, you are God who hides yourself, O God of Israel, the Savior. He's saying, look, you're going to hide yourself in this heathen king. Only God could do these things, in other words. They shall be ashamed and also disgraced of all of them. They'll go into confusion together. Who are the makers of idols? But Israel shall be saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. For you shall not be ashamed nor disgraced forever. God says, look, I'm going to show you things that you can't even imagine. I'm going to do stuff that you can't do by yourself. I'm going to make things happen that you can't take care of no matter what you do. He's basically saying, who is like me? You know, the world may say they don't like the Jewish people. God does. And people who love the Lord should also love the Jewish people. As the Bible says, he will bless those who bless them and curse those who curse them. He still has a plan for their lives. Verse 18 says, For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, Who is God who formed the earth and made it, who established it? who did not create it in vain. He didn't set it loose for billions of years of random chance purposes and death to do exactly what Paul said can't happen in Romans chapter 5, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be, look at this, inhabited. God created a fully functioning earth and put Adam on it. He didn't create an earth that was in the process of evolution. For I am the Lord, and there is no other. Basically, God is saying, look, I'm going to create you. I'm creating the earth. I'm putting you on it. I have a purpose. That's why when somebody says, well, you know, I just believe in evolution, I go, well, why? If you're a Christian, I don't know how you can. Because the Bible plainly says, Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 14, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and through death and sin, death through sin, in other words, death came into the world because of Adam's sin. There was no death prior to that. So how did all these billions upon billions upon billions of animals and supposed pre-humans die if there was no death until Adam came? And Adam wasn't a monkey. God didn't say, and I created Bobo. The chimpanzee. No, he said, I named him Adam. And then he brought all the animals of the fields before Adam and said, I want you to name them. And I'm going to give you dominion or care for them. That's not like Adam is one of them. He's not a highly evolved animal. He's completely different. Fully formed, fully functioning. And so your Bible says that death spread to all men because all have sinned. That's what your Bible says. We didn't go through millions upon millions of years of human evolution and billions of years of animal evolution. That is contrary to what your Bible says. So if you believe the Bible, evolution is a farce. No matter what people try and tell you. And by the way, most people are abandoning the theory of Darwinian evolution because it has too many dead ends in it. There are too many things that you can't prove with it. They have no answer for how blue-green algae even came about. Somehow some gases existed in the heavens that coalesced together and somehow collected in one space and managed to put together amino acids and proteins that linked perfectly in chains. If you believe that, You do have a lot of faith. The Bible simply says that there was no death until Adam sinned. Your Bible says that God created man and put him on this earth. You don't just have that in the book of Genesis. You've got it right here in the book of Isaiah as well. That's why Ezekiel said, I've set you 
in Eden. Speaking of Satan himself, the divine cherub. God's reminding us who he is, telling the Jewish people, so who is like the creator God? No one. No one is. So God allows the flood of Noah, buries the face of the earth, and in some places, miles of sediment, creating all kinds of fossil layers. Some places are completely upside down. You know, you're, create, you're, you're given Lyle's table of geologic dating and all kinds of textbooks. They don't tell you is it exists completely upside down in multiple places in the world where the fossils that are supposed to be on the top are on the bottom and likewise. That you can't date anything to billions of years. There's an assumption that the rock, because of its sedimentary layers, the way it's laid down in layers, because of the depth the compression of the layers, that it's that many years old because you can only date something to maybe 15,000 years if you have very precise radiometric dating. You can't date anything to billions of years. You have to believe that so much rock was laid down. What if the world was covered with water? So God finally says, he alone is the creator. Verse 19, I've not spoken in secret in a dark place of the earth. I did not say to the seed of Jacob, seek me in vain. In other words, I'm giving you enough information that when you start looking, you're going to bump into me. You know, oddly enough, until Charles Darwin authored his Origin of Species, uh, he also was going to go into ministry. He abandoned that. So when you look at the world today and you look at this supposed seminal work that now has created the thought that we might be the random chance offspring of billions of years of evolution, nobody in the world believed that until the 1840s, 1850s. Everybody believed there was a creator. Why? Because exactly as Paul said, you could simply look at the things that were made and go, hmm, I think God did that. I've not spoken in secret. They don't seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak in righteousness and declare the things that are right. Assemble yourselves and come and draw near together who have escaped from the nation. So now he's going back to their story saying, look, you're going to escape. They're going, no, we're not. We're inside of the most fortified city in the Near East at the time. They have no knowledge who carried their wood-carved images and pray to a God that cannot save and tell. Bring forth your case. Yes, let them counsel together. Who has declared this from an ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? There is no other God besides me, a just God, a Savior. There's none beside me. God's bragging. He's boasting. He's saying, look, I'm going to show you things that no one else can show you. I'm going to tell you things that no one else can tell you. I'm going to give you some answers to some questions that you aren't going to find out. Basically, mankind is not going to find out for a very, very, very long time. All for the purpose of verse 22, look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself. The word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and it will not return. That to me, notice this, you're going to hear something that you've heard before. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall take an oath. You know why the Apostle Paul wrote that to the church of Philippi? Because God had been sending that message for a very long time. One day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's exactly what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2. And in fact, God, writing to the author of Hebrews, said, because God can't swear by any higher name, he swears by himself. You know, because we, we do things like, I swear on my mama's grave. I swear on my aunt's, you know, favorite blouse or whatever. Whatever your swearing thing is. Don't swear, by the way. 
Don't swear and don't swear. Either one. But God, when he makes an oath, guess what he does? I make an oath by myself. I'm me. I alone can do these things. For he shall say, surely in the Lord I have righteousness and strength. To him men shall come and shall all be ashamed who are incensed against him. For in the Lord, all the descendants of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Imagine hearing that while you're in captivity. Imagine hearing that while your nation has been racked by war for centuries. Not a week, not a month, not a pandemic. The systematic destruction of virtually the whole country taking of the Jewish people captive by foreign army after foreign army after foreign army. God says to them, surely in the Lord, I have righteousness and strength. To him men shall come. All will be ashamed who are incensed against him. That's why it's not a good thing to talk back to the potter to strive with God. For in the Lord, all the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Israel, shall be justified and shall glory. Amen. Let's stand and we'll pray together. Father, we thank you for the certainty of your word. And truly, Lord, we stand in awe of you. You are creator God. We owe everything to you. You created the entire universe and all that's in it. You have declared the former things and they came true. You've declared things that have yet to come to pass and they will come true. And so we bow our knee tonight to you, King Jesus, not to our governor not to a president, not to a Congress, not to the UN, not to NATO. Lord, we in your house bow to you and to you alone. We have no king save you, no savior but you. And so, Lord, we ask that you'd open our hearts and we pray for those maybe here in this place tonight that don't know you, that tonight for them, hearing the words of life, knowing that there's a creator that created them, would ask you into their life to be their personal Lord, their Savior. They'd forsake their sin and ask for forgiveness, commit their life to you, confessing that you died for them, substitutionally on the cross, allowing us to have a relationship with you that's eternal, that can't be taken. Father, we give you our lives as vessels, Make them holy and honorable to you. Use your church. Let us be that light that we're supposed to be that's not hidden under a bushel basket, but is placed on a hill for all to see. Use us for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.